Today I'm going to go and continue our series on Revelation. So if you were not here last week, I strongly encourage you to get on our website and listen to our message. All of our messages, our audio messages are on our website at rosscommon.cc. Um, we're starting a series on the book of Revelation. Um, and it's a powerful, powerful series that I'm learning as well as I'm studying and preparing and seeking God. And so um, today is our, our second message. And this, I believe this will be a lengthy series. Um, but um, we are excited to continue in this. And so today's message is entitled Kings and Priests. As most of you know, I'm a teacher in the public schools. And just, just as I am a teacher here in the Word of God. Today I want to teach you some amazing things that in God's Word that have always been there, but maybe you didn't realize it or make the connection or get the revelation from God. Maybe you've never seen it before. So right now I want to ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and to illuminate our hearts with wisdom and understanding and to blow us away with His goodness and the power of His Word. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, who wrote this book, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. The book of Revelation highlights a revelation that John receives from the Lord in which John is told to write to the seven churches in Asia everything that he sees and hears. And the first thing that John sees is a picture of the throne room of God. As John describes the Holy Trinity or God's triune or three-in-one nature. Now throughout Revelation, as most of you know, there is great symbolism which has led to a variety of interpretations, and not all are accurate, especially those who stray from the Word of God. But God never meant this book to be so confusing. Therefore, we must understand how to interpret biblical philosophy. The first rule of interpretation is to use the Word of God to interpret the Word of God. Instead of thinking that you have to go to some outside source or some hidden tradition or some book that only a few people have or see some anointed figure that God chose this certain person to understand it. In fact, that is exactly how false religious and false prophets get started. They state that God gave them a special anointing and a special revelation for the end times. Remember, the Word of God in its fullness is the key to interpreting the Word of God as the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds with the truth. So what is the meaning in this first verse of these seven spirits who are before the throne? Now, many people would say that they are angels, but let's use the Word of God to interpret the Word of God. While there are different plausible interpretations, a careful study can tell you that they are definitely not angels or angelic beings. If you look at the verse, it says that grace and peace are offered from Him, meaning the Lord, and from the seven spirits. Since grace can only be offered by God 
and not from angels, we can infer that the seven spirits must be God or a description of the Holy Spirit who is God. And, maybe, and probably many of you know that there's been a part of culture that has began to worship angels. We are not, angels do not receive worship. They are messengers of God to, to do His will, to direct all worship to God Himself. The verse states that grace and peace come from these seven spirits. So that means that they must be, that they, since grace can only come from God, they must be God. They must be the Holy Spirit. But why seven? Well, first of all, the number seven is used a lot in the book of Revelation and throughout the Bible. It's a number of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. As we will see, sevens are woven into every part of this book. Let me tell you that it's not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, God reveals symbols from the Old Testament Why? Because he expects his readers to go back into the Old Testament and go back to the Word of God to look up these symbols and to see what God meant by them. In fact, much of Revelation's meanings can be discovered through studying the books of the prophets. Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and many others. You cannot just read Revelation on its own. It's at the end of the Bible for a reason that we need to use the whole Bible to understand the book of Revelation. Did you know that a sevenfold description, talking about the seven spirits, did you know that a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit is actually given in the book of Isaiah when he prophesied about Jesus coming to be the fulfillment of God's will? It's in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And it says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him, Him meaning Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now if you look at it, the spirit of the Lord. So that's the first part, that that the spirit is Lord, so that's godliness. That's the first one. The second one is wisdom. And then third is understanding. And fourth is counsel. And five, fifth is might. And six is knowledge. And seven is the fear of the Lord or holy and reverential fear of the Lord. That's the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. And yet when we see it in the Revelation, we think, who are the seven spirits? Well, God says, I want you to go back and look because I've given you all that you need if you go back to the Word. Not to somebody that says, I have special revelation. The Holy Spirit is sevenfold, which is a number of completeness. These seven attributes work in the heart and in the soul of every believer because when we come to Jesus Christ and repent of our sins, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, and now the Holy Spirit distributes these attributes to each and every one of us. So we see from the very beginning that the key to understanding this prophecy is not to follow after some anointed holy man or woman who will appear in the last days. God already gave us the key. The key is right here in the Bible. Thus we are to be like the early Christians, like the Christians from Berea. Now if I say that you're not sure what I'm talking about, Acts 17.11 describes these early Christians who we are to pattern our lives after as well. Acts 17.11 says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, 
in that they receive the Word with all readiness and search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so. Unfortunately, false religions and false teachers and false movements happen because people don't know the Word of God and they take someone's Word at its price, at, at value, instead of going back to the Scriptures to search to see if it lines up with the Word. This is what God calls us to do. To receive the Word with all readiness. Not to be stuck in such a mystery that we're easily led astray and remain in fear. We are to search the Scriptures daily for truth. Therefore, this is what we will continue to do as we dive into the book of Revelation. And with the Holy Spirit as our guide, He will give us wisdom to understand. He will give us knowledge and understanding as we take this journey into His Word. Revelation 1.5 And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. As Jesus is introduced in His authority, we see plainly what kind of ruler or king He is. He is one that leads by example. I've always found that it's hard to follow someone who's not willing to do that themselves. Right? Telling you they don't live that way or they wouldn't do that, but they want you to do it. But our leader, our ruler, our king, Jesus, asks us to do things that he has already done. He already gave his life. He already went all over the place. He already did not shrink back from persecution. He stepped into it. He already gave his life as an offering for our sins. That is how much he loved us. He walked this earth. He was persecuted. He was mocked spit at, laughed at, judged unfairly. Remember, he lived a perfect life, did not sin. Yet he knew the only way that heaven could be opened for any one of us and all of us was that his blood had to be shed on the cross as a payment for our sins. That is love. Revelations 1.6 And has made us, Jesus Christ, has made us kings and priests. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, did you know that you are kings and priests? Jesus has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through His sacrificial death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, Jesus now offers us His gift of grace to all who come to Him. And in this gift, He has passed His authority down to us, making us kings and priests in the earth. So what does this mean? Well, how about we go to the Word of God to find out what this means of what, when, he, when He calls us kings and priests. In ancient Israel, one of the most important places was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the sacred tent that the Israelites carried as they journeyed to the Promised Land. It was sacred because it was where the heavenly presence of God lived on earth. And the tabernacle had an important design to show just how special it was. First, there was the outer courtyard. Second, there was an entry room into the tent that led into the third place, which was called the Holy of Holies, the center of the tabernacle. 
It was God's personal throne room on the earth. Only the high priest in Israel could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred place on earth. It was guarded by these heavenly creatures called cherubim. And the closer one got to the center of the tabernacle, the more sacred it became. The people who worked in the tabernacle were called priests. They took care of the sacred space, offering sacrifices on behalf of Israel, and announced God's blessing over the people. These priests represented God to the people. And they, rep- and they represented the people to God. So think of both the tabernacle and the priests who worked in it like gateways that linked heaven and earth. That was the role of a priest. This is why the tabernacle was eventually brought up on a mountain to settle on a mountain. In fact, that mountain is in Jerusalem on its holy hill. It was brought up to be on a mountain because mountains are really are places where heaven meets earth. Now, one thing that was missing in this tabernacle that you would have found in every other ancient holy space were idol images that were used to physically represent the God being worshipped. If you go into different temples of other religions around the world, you will see idol pictures and idol images so you could focus your worship on this idol image. But in the, in the Holy of Holies, on the, there was no idol image there. Do you know why there is no idol image? Because as we know in the Ten Commandments, God explicitly commanded people to not make any idol images. We see in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. That is why our cross does not have an image on it. Okay, we we believe in, in following God and not and not carving images for our worship. The reason why God commanded us to not make a carved image to worship, listen to this, is because from the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that all humanity is God's image. Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are all created in God's image, males and females. And as God's image, we were created to represent God in his holy space, which at the beginning of the world, that holy space was the Garden of Eden. This place was designed to show that Eden was the reality that the later tabernacle symbolized and pointed back to. If you think about Eden, you'll see something very familiar. Just like the tabernacle, there were also three areas in Eden. The larger region on the land was called Eden. But then within Eden, God planted a garden. And then in the center of the garden, God planted the tree of life. In a similar way, the design of Eden matched the tabernacle design. And there are also details in the description of Eden to show that it was on a high mountain. Did you know that? Look at this in Genesis 2, verse 10. It says, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, 
and from there it parted and became four river heads. The elevated location of the Garden of Eden is indicated by the fact that a single river flows out of Eden before dividing to become four rivers. Basic science tells us that water flows downward or downhill as it begins to divide off as well. Therefore, Eden was set on a mountain, making it in a place where earth meets heaven, much like where the tabernacle was set in Jerusalem on a hill as well. God told Adam and Eve to work and to keep the garden. These are the same words that are used later in the Bible to describe what priests were to do in the tabernacle. So Adam and Eve were the God's image, and they were like priests, working and worshiping in a type of heaven on earth. They represented creation to God, and as God's image, they represented God to all of creation. And they did all of this in this sacred place that was saturated with God's presence and His life. And then God told them to be like kings. He told them to rule creation on His behalf. Genesis 1.28 Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and rule it or subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Because they were given authority to rule over God's creation, they were like priests who embodied God's heavenly wisdom and ruled here on earth. In other words, they were royal priests or kings and priests. Now this whole setup with the royal priests and God's presence where there was abundance and life in the book of Genesis, Genesis is called God's blessing. But then, of course, we all know the rest of the story. How this blessing didn't last very long. Adam and Eve were deceived by a rebellious creature or a serpent because Adam and Eve were unsatisfied being merely images of God. They wanted more. That's what sin does. It always wants more. It's not satisfied. Adam and Eve did not want to be just images of God. They wanted to be just like God, ruling creation on their own terms. In truth, that is exactly what we do when we disobey God and give in to temptation and sin. We think we can make the rules and avoid the consequences. But God didn't design life to work that way. And Adam and Eve found this out very quickly. So God kicked them out of the garden. And He placed Caravim at its entrance at the door to guard the way back in. Thus humanity had given up the role that God had designed them to hold. But that was not the end. The rest of the biblical story is about God's mission to undo this tragedy so that people could come back into His presence once again. So that humans could access this heaven on earth. This place where they could finally become God's royal priests or His kings and priests. It all began with a promise from the very beginning of the Bible that God would raise up one of their descendants to rule over and to defeat this deceiver. Thus God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That seed is capitalized because Jesus, he's already talked about when Jesus comes. That's God. 
I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This meant that this coming descendant would strike the head of the deceiver, but he would also be struck by it as well. In other words, this priestly figure would restore God's blessing by offering up his own life as a sacrifice. And we know that that speaks of none other than Jesus. Going back to Revelations 1.5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, God does not want us to walk around without faith or to walk around thinking that we've been defeated. What He wants us to do is to understand that He has given us authority in this world to be kings and priests to Him. The truth of the matter is that many of the things that people pray for, God has already given to us. We just don't know what, we've been, what we have received. We don't know the authority that we have in Jesus Christ. When we talk about missionaries around the world sharing faith in the face of persecution, it's because they know that the authority that they have. They don't shrink back from fear. They step into it if they are following God. God wants us all to walk in the authority that He has given us. Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests. We have received a kingdom of grace which cannot be taken away. And we have been given great authority of kings to denounce sin and all the works of the devil. But we also are dressed like kings. We are clothed like kings. How is that? We've been given this rich apparel because we've been clothed with the righteousness of our King Jesus. One of my favorite verses is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, For God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So He took Jesus who did not sin and He put our sin coat on top of Jesus that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, because of His great and amazing love for us, Jesus took our sins upon Himself. He clothed Himself with our sins. And as sin was punished, Jesus gave His life on the cross. See, God could not destroy Him unless He put the sin of mankind on Jesus because He had to destroy sin or the penalty of sin. But the amazing thing is that because Jesus then rose from the dead and conquered death and hell and the grave, He clothed us with His righteousness. So He took what we deserve, death on the cross, and, he, and though, even though He deserves righteousness because He lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law, Jesus puts His righteousness upon us. We are clothed like kings. We have royal robes of righteousness. Amen? When we confess our sins to Him, when we confess our need for Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, accepting His sacrifices that He made for us, we are clothed with royal robes of righteousness which allow us now to stand before God. Because we have all sinned, we cannot come into God's presence, but because He put His righteousness on us, now when God looks on us, He sees the blood of Jesus that has paid the price for our sins. He doesn't see our sins. We're going to continue to sin because that's what we are. 
until we get to heaven and we're made like Him. But right now, God sees that righteousness upon us. That's why we can approach Him and go to prayer and approach Him and go to praise and approach Him and just be in His presence. Indeed, He has made us kings by His sacrifice for us. And He also has made us priests to offer up spiritual sacrifices. What are spiritual sacrifices? Prayer and praise and thanksgiving. Did you know that when Jonah was in the belly of the whale, it said he offered up a sacrifice of thanks? How do you give thanks after a whale swallows you? That's why it's a sacrifice, because your flesh might not always feel like it, but I'm going to still choose to worship God anyways. I'm going to make a sacrifice of my fl- what my flesh wants, and I'm going to choose to sacrifice thanks or prayer or praise to God. Our flesh wants to serve itself and seek after the world instead of seeking after God. It is our spirit that seeks the things of God. So our spirit and our flesh are in constant battle all the time. Our spirit is seeking God and our flesh is seeking after the world. And sometimes our flesh wins. And sometimes our spirit wins. And so sometimes when our flesh is all pulling us one way, we make a sacrifice of what our flesh wants and we choose to worship God instead. Or we choose to thank God. Or we choose to praise God unconditionally. We deny our flesh so that our spirit can be fed. Romans 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now this does not mean to lay yourself down on the altar and torture yourself to give it to God. Okay? But when he says to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, our lives are to be holy and pleasing to God. And then he goes on to say that this is your true and proper worship. This is how we are to worship God. It's not Worship is not about singing songs or playing instruments. Worship is about how we live our life before God. And when we fail, and we all do, and I mess up really bad a lot of times, but when we fail, we go to God and we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness and we continue to worship Him. We continue to keep getting back up and keep coming back to God. That is how we live our life, especially in front of others. When people around you are trying to check out your God, when you mess up and you come back and you humble yourself and you apologize and you say I was wrong and you work through forgiveness and you continue to come back to God, that is our true and proper worship before God. We are each called to be a living sacrifice, for this is our true and proper worship. This means that we choose to live our lives for Jesus no matter what anyone else says, no matter how difficult it becomes, or how much our flesh wants something else, we must choose to follow the One who died for us. Earlier we talked about Philip and some of our missionaries who are willing to give their lives to be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's what God calls us. We don't know what's going to happen to the calling we have in our lives, but are you willing to follow Jesus no matter what happens? If you lose your rights, if you lose your job, if you lose your home, if you lose your life. God looks at our heart to see if we are willing to follow Him. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do we renew our minds? By spending time 
in His Word, by knowing His Word, by coming back, searching the Scriptures daily to find out if these things are true. God is calling all of us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. When we come to Him and seek after Him, realizing our need for Jesus, God does amazing things in our lives. As we offer up sacrifices of prayer and praise, He comes to us individually. And He forgives us individually. And He heals us individually. And then He sends us out and He says, you're working for Me now. Go and be My light. And go and be My salt in the earth. Make people thirsty for what you have. And I want to bring My blessing upon them. He sends us out into the world to be used by Him as kings and priests to usher in His holy kingdom on the earth. But each of us must choose if we are willing to follow Him with our lives. We are called to count the cost. It may be a difficult road following Jesus. Listen, it will not always be popular to follow Jesus. There was a time when I grew up, it was popular. It was a thing to do, but it will not always be popular to follow Jesus. We will face rejection. Some will face persecution for choosing to follow Jesus. In fact, later in the book of Revelation, as many of you know, we see that many of the saints or believers are persecuted or killed for their faith. This is why we take the Word of God so seriously. God promises His very best for all of us for eternity. But we must be willing to commit to Him. It's not going to be easy. But we can do it together as believers and brothers and sisters praying for one another, committing our lives to Him. We must be willing to pledge our allegiance to the Lamb of God who took away our sins. Are you ready to take that next step? This is not just another sermon or another series. This is a serious thing, the word that God has given for such a time as this. He is asking for our commitment to take that next step together as a body and walk in the authority of kings and priests in the kingdom of God here on earth. 